Welcome everyone here, perhaps those watching online. As we come to a new chapter on the book of Romans, just a reminder that at Acts Reformed Church, we pick a book of the Bible and then we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we just go through it, right? And we preach whatever it's in front of us uh, that particular Sunday. So uh, this brings us to chapter 11 in the book of Romans. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. The word of God with authority from the Holy Spirit reads as follows. I ask them, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that as we think and meditate through the passage this morning, that you would be gracious to us humans who even dare to ask you whether you are faithful or not, whether you have forgotten us or not. Thank you that you have reserved a remnant as your people, which is only possible because you have shown compassion rather than justice. So Lord, may your Holy Spirit teach us and convict us this morning of these great truths. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I've titled today's sermon, The Mercy of God and the Pride of Men. The Mercy of God and the Pride of Men. Throughout chapter 10, there was this theme that the Apostle Paul was teaching on. Paul opens up chapter 10 and then expounds upon that by expressing his grief for the people of Israel on how they are lost. And Paul says that he is praying for the salvation of Israel. And then he lays out the case of why it is that Israel is without an excuse for their unbelief and why Israel is without excuse for their rebellion against God. Paul makes clear that the people of Israel had the word of God, they had preachers, they had prophets, they had knowledge, yet they did not understand. They did not have a heart of understanding towards the things of God. And we touched upon that last week when we thought that only the people of Israel could be such people, stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious only to come to realize that we too can hear without understanding, that we too can harden our hearts to the truth of the gospel. 
So today, as we turn to chapter 11, Paul turns to the next objection that his Jewish audience would have. This objection that Paul turns to, he's been treating a series of objections that his audience would have. And Paul is using the methodology known as a diatribe in order to teach his audience. Meaning, he expects that a question will be asked, he asks the question, and then he breaks it down. He gives the answer. And the question that Paul is going to be answering now, in plain terms, would be something like this. Okay, Paul, let's grant your point that Israel was self-deprived of their right standing before God because of the disobedience. Okay, let's give you that. Now, God is still not off the hook because God has made promises to Israel. So then, could it be that God has failed? Are there not promises made to Israel? The Jewish folks see that as yes. You can't deny that. How could they be lost then? So this is basically an age-old question that is recurring in the generations of mankind concerning God. That question is basically, has God forgotten us? Has God forgotten his promises? Has God forgotten his children? And even for some of us, has God forgotten me? What's, what's going on with the promises that I thought once God had for me? This could be sincere doubt. But oftentimes, this type of questioning can also be the sinful pride of our hearts questioning God. But in either case, God is not afraid of our questions. And God addresses our questions. So today, the main point we'll extract from this text is the following. God has not and will not reject his people. So let's address the first question. Has God rejected Israel? Which is what the scripture here poses before us. Now just a brief thought here. Given the disobedience, the rebellion of Israel, and given the disobedience and the rebellion of us nowadays, our brothers and sisters, thank God that He is not like us. In our sinful anger, in our vengeful mind. Because if I was in such position of authority, I would wipe everybody out. And I would suppose that many of you would too. Thank God that he is not like man. So here we're going to see first that God has not rejected Israel. And Paul is saying, Exhibit A, look at me. I am a Jew. Romans 11.1 1 reads as follows. I asked him, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself and it is am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? Question, does chapter 11 talk about Israel as a nation, as a physical people? Yeah, he does. Can, can avoid that. Second question, does chapter 11 indicate that, as we move to chapter 11 in, in the upcoming weeks, does chapter 11 also indicate that somehow the whole nation of Israel as a nation will one day repent 
and God will return to them as a nation. I know this is a topic of controversy, but as I tongue-in-cheek often say, we'll settle that today. And the answer is no, that is not what the scripture refers to. And we're going to see that as we expound upon chapter 11. That being said, the charge against God is that he could potentially be seen as rejecting his people. And Paul's response is here, God forbid, may it never be. It is not so. Very strong language Paul uses there to give a negative to that question. And Paul says, I am an Israelite. It is impossible, therefore, that God has forsaken Israel. Let's take a quick look at 2 Corinthians 11.22. Paul speaking here, he says, are they Hebrews? He says, well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the offspring of Abraham? So am I. So Paul identifies as one of the tribe of Benjamin, of the descendants of Abraham, in the flesh, and says, I have been redeemed by God. How could somebody say that, therefore, God has rejected his people? I'm, I'm going to live an example that he has not. Now, a quick recap of Paul identifying himself as one that is from the tribe of Benjamin. In Genesis 49, each of the 12 sons of Jacob receive a blessing. That blessing, by and large, includes each of those sons becoming the patriarch of a particular tribe. Benjamin, being the youngest one, received the blessing last. So if we're familiar with genealogies and how the Bible puts a hierarchical value to the sons of a particular marriage, we know that the firstborn is of preeminence. And the younger or the later that somebody is born, they are more and more down that ladder, right? Well, Benjamin was the last one. So it is implied here that in that hierarchy, the blessing to Benjamin was the least. And it was prophesied that Benjamin would be one known for fighting, for defending, and for causing division in a sinful way. And these things, these blessings that were prophesied over Benjamin were both good and bad. A quick recap of the good. We see that from the tribe of Benjamin came some notable Heroic, if you will, if you will, people in the Bible. For instance, we'll take a look at Judges chapter 3. Ehud, a great warrior who delivered Israel from Moab. Right, fought for Israel. In the book of 1 Samuel, we see that Saul is inaugurated as the first king. And from there, great lessons came to Israel. In the book of Esther, we see that Mordecai and Esther were used to deliver the Jewish people 
from death. They were, otherwise, it would have been wiped out. And then the fourth example is Paul. Paul himself. He was once a prosecutor of Christians, a murderer of Christians, and becomes one of the main characters that God uses to bring people to the gospel. So some great lessons, some great people that were descendants of the tribe of Benjamin. Now some bad things from the book of Benjamin, I mean from the tribe of Benjamin, also showed the depravity to the max. For instance, the book of Judges, chapters 19 and 20, there's a civil war in which Benjamin turns and fights his brothers, the other 11 tribes. This is a time that the Bible talks about where everyone was doing what they thought was right in their own minds. And chaos ensued. So basically what we're living today. Everybody's living according to and doing what they think is right in their own mind. And that can never lead to anything good. That will never lead to a blessing from God. For there is a way that seems right to man, the prophet says, but its end is the way of death. So... When that battle was going on, it led to the horrific abuse and death of an unnamed Levite's concubine. When they brought this accusation against the tribe of Benjamin, the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin refused to give up the culprit or the culprits, the perpetrators of such wicked crime. And as a result, Benjamin was nearly wiped out. So Paul comes and says, I am a descendant of that tribe. A representation both of the grace of God, despite the depravity of the people from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul himself, again a murder, a rebel against God's plan for salvation in Christ. And yet, the grace of God, transformed by Christ himself, became a warrior for the kingdom of God. This did not happen because of Paul's qualifications, although he had great qualifications, but rather because God's grace was shown towards Paul. And Paul says, I am a living example that Israel has not been rejected by God. There's other accounts of Jewish believers coming to Christ. I'll give you two quick examples. One, after the raising of Lazarus from the dead, John 11.45 says the following, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So Jews come to faith in Christ. Then in Luke chapter 2, when Joseph and Mary presented Jesus at the temple, Simeon, a devout worshiper in Jerusalem, had a revelation from God that he would not die without seeing the Savior. And along with him was also Anna, the prophetess, who spoke of Jesus being the one to redeem Israel in Jerusalem. And then, obviously, the apostles. There were Jewish men. So we can start to see that not only Paul, but other Jewish people we know of that were not part of the 
children or sons of the devil, as Jesus himself called the Jewish people. Not all of them were. There were some that were believers in Christ. So then that brings us to the second header. The perspective of man versus the truth of God. Oftentimes, our perception of what God is doing, or even by and large of who God is, is based strictly on our situation, on our experience, on our emotions. And when we do that, it is very often the case that our perspective of what God is doing, of who God is, is contrary to the truth of who God actually is. In this case, those that may have thought that God rejected Israel were looking at this from a human perspective. Let us read verses 2 and 3. It says, God had not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Quote, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. Unquote. So then the plain answer for the second time here is that God did not reject his people. Because he foreknew them. That is, he preordained to have a special relationship with them. And in this passage quote from the Old Testament, in which Elijah appeals to God, Elijah is under distress, hinting at the fact that life is over for him. And Elijah thought that, hey Lord, like I'm the last man standing here, what's going to happen? And he's saying, this people, Israel, They've had nothing but rebellion and sin against you. They've killed your prophets. Now, quick recap on Elijah so that we can understand why Paul is quoting from here. Elijah dealt with the king and the queen of the ten tribes of northern Israel. Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel is arguably the most wicked woman described in the Bible. In short, she was power-hungry, violent, whorish woman, a follower of Baal, and therefore an enemy of the true prophets of God. A couple of verses notable for speaking of Jezebel in this way. We'll do two. First, we see... 1 Kings 21-25, it reads as follows, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. We see the wickedness of Jezebel here, that she is inciting her husband to be wicked. Now mind you, the Bible teaches that the man is the head of the house. So Ahab is not, I repeat, Ahab is not off the hook. He's responsible for his own sin. Nevertheless, we see that Jezebel was the main character in inciting her husband 
to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Next passage, 2 Kings 9.37. This is a prophecy about Jezebel that was fulfilled, literally. It says, And the courts of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, that no one can say, This is Jezebel. Due to her rebellion and disobedience, she would suffer the consequence of being humiliated upon her death. So Elijah lived dealing with such wicked leadership. And he was in trouble because he had shown that Jehovah God was the only true God. And that all the false gods that Israel was worshipping were exposed. For Elijah put all those false prophets to shame when he challenged them to see whose God would be able to light up an offering. In that account, we saw that Elijah proved that the false gods that Israel was worshiping, the false prophets of Baal, were worthless. They had no power. And afterwards, the penalty was that Elijah slaughtered all the false prophets. For this, Jezebel was not happy, and she ordered the killing of Elijah. So Elijah went into hiding. And even though Elijah had been used by God and experienced the miraculous power of God Almighty when he exposed the false gods and the false prophets, we read in scripture that Elijah, at that point, was afraid, doubting whether God would deliver him. My brothers and sisters, have we not experienced this Elijah-like syndrome in our lives when God has delivered us, saved us, even used us miraculously for his glory, only to be doubtful of God as soon as the first trial hits us? We see another example like this with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, very bold preacher of the gospel, preaching repentance, calling out the religious leaders of the time, calling out sin, specifically what got him killed, where he knew he was going to be in trouble by calling out the sin of Herod's wife and then being ordered to be beheaded. And when he was in prison under distress because he didn't know what was going on, the Bible says that he sent out messengers to go ask, is Jesus really the one? Maybe I was wrong here. Like, I don't know what's going on. Again, John the Baptist being greatly used of God, seeing the great power of God. And then when he was under distress and in jail, he starts doubting. So, what to do if one feels that God's promises are not really there? When feeling as though, like I'm done. Maybe God did great things before, and I've seen him deliver me before, and deliver my family or my children, etc. But now, like, this is really it. Like, that's, 
That's all God had. Or maybe it was just coincidence. The doubt that our trials may bring. And mind you, many times, I would say probably in our context of American Christianity, most times those trials arrive because of our own sinfulness. Not because we're necessarily being persecuted. So when Elijah was at his lowest, most discouraged point, being sought by Jezebel to be put to death, that's in the context in which Elijah expresses a despair to God, and in essence says, Lord, they hate you. They killed your prophets, and now they're after me. I'm the only one standing here. I'm the only one left. The rebellion of men against God. Israel was guilty of unfaithfulness. Turned to idols, false gods, false prophets. Yet God was faithful to keep his people separated for himself. So was it just one person left? God gives an answer to Elijah, which turns to our third header here. The mercy of God despite Israel's unfaithfulness. Romans 11.4 reads, But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, God's answer to Elijah is encouraging. And he reassures him, Elijah, you are not the, la the last man standing. God is telling Elijah, I have an army of people that are still standing. You are not alone. But let's say for a second that Elijah was the last one standing. What if, in fact, we find ourselves in a situation where we look around and we indeed are the last one standing? Let us be reminded of what Joshua 23.10 says. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. From this verse, the great Charles Spurgeon once said, quote, one man with God is a majority, though there be a thousand on the other side, Unquote. If you're standing with Christ, you're in the majority. It doesn't matter how many hands are raised against you in opposition. If you are with Christ, as a matter of fact, you will be in the minority. Okay? For wide is the path that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few are those who find it. So rest assured, you will be in the minority. Faithfulness of God in the Old Testament, assuring Elijah that he is not alone. So Christian, you are not alone in your fight. Whether it's a personal struggle of faith, or maybe a, a broader fight against the Jezebels of our day. You are not alone. God has his faithful remnant. And we see God's faithfulness in the New Testament, and even up until today. The last two verses in our passage today read as follows. Verses 5 and 6. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So here's the key. There is a true Israel 
within the physical Israel. Physical Israel, within there, there's a, a true Israel. It goes back to the question of whether there's some, still a massive Israelite conversion to come. As a nation, the answer is no. At least not in the sense that many of our brothers and sisters today believe that it will be. Let us go back to Romans 9, 6 and 8. There's as follows. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So the true Israel is comprised of those within Israel who are born again. Plus, the Gentiles, as the scripture says, that have been circumcised of heart. Those that hear the gospel and turn to God by grace through faith in Christ. My brothers and sisters, we are the remnant of God set apart for himself in Christ. So those who belong to God then are his because he has been merciful despite of their sin. If you are a Christian today, it is because you have been shown grace instead of justice. If you're a Christian today, it's because Christ has died in your place instead of letting you perish in your sin. If you're a Christian today, it is not because you did something, but because Christ did it all. So then, if there were ever something that could be said before God the Father, to come before God the Father and say, hey, here I am, accept me on the basis of the works that I have done. That would not be of grace, it would be of works. And a failing work at that. The only one, please take this, my brothers and sisters, the only one who could come and say, here I am, accept me in the basis of my works is Jesus. He's the only one who can make that claim and be accepted. So it is not based on works. It is based on grace. Paul, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, highly qualified as a Pharisee, in the book of Philippians, talks about his qualifications as a Jew. And in short, he pretty much puts a challenge to his fellow Jews and says, you think you're a good Pharisee? Actually, I'm a better Pharisee than you. And he has a great point that he makes. Let me read from Philippians 3, the end of verse 4 through verse 6. It reads as follows. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Then Paul goes on to basically show the Jewish folks that he's more qualified than them if they want to be measured on the basis of works. And then Paul says this. He says, all that, he builds up his qualifications. He said, all that is a pile of dung compared to knowing my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All those qualifications earned him a pile of 
Yes, of that. That's what Paul says. Because if it was by his accomplishments, it would no longer be of grace. And therefore Paul says, I have nothing to boast of. Because I am a descendant of Abraham through the tribe of Benjamin. And I have been redeemed by faith in Christ, by his grace. And that is how God shows us through this text, through the scripture, that he has not forsaken his people. And those that could have thought that or that may be asking that are not considering that God has not rejected his people. As a matter of fact, he has shown them grace. Remember at the end of chapter 10 that God says he has continuously extended his hands to a people who are stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious. You know who God has rejected in no uncertain terms? The one who was perfect. God the Father rejected Christ, made him sin when you know sin, so that by his perfection we may be saved. If you ever want to talk about who's really rejected by God the Father, it was Christ. And he did it on behalf of the elect. Some final thoughts here then, what are they? There is an ultimate plan for Israel. And that plan has been fulfilled. That is, to provide Messiah, to provide a Savior, to provide a way out of damnation. And that ultimate promise to Israel is the same promise to us. That through him, through Jesus, all the nations of the, of the earth will be blessed. Being a descendant of Abraham. Through the seed of Abraham. So we know then that God saves on the basis of grace, not race. All who are saved must come through Christ. There's no other path on the basis of grace. Secondly, be reminded, my brothers and sisters, you are not alone. You are not alone in your walk as a Christian. God has others whom he has set apart that have not bowed the knee to the Baals of our day. It may seem that Acts Reformed Church, being a small, insignificant church, that perhaps we're standing alone against the burden of our culture, of the wickedness of our day. We are not. We are not alone. God has reserved an army of saints that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Let us be encouraged by that. And lastly, let us be reminded that in spite of our wickedness, God is merciful. God saves people today the same way, in the only way he has ever saved people. That is, by faith, by grace. Abraham was justified by faith. Israel was saved by grace. Gentiles are also saved by grace. 
And there's no difference between unbelieving Israel and unbelieving Gentiles. In both cases, they're both condemned because of their sin. Similarly, there's no difference between believing Israel and believing Gentiles. Because in both cases, they are saved by God's mercy and grace. There's no distinction, no race, no nation, no tongue. We are united in Christ. So despite the rebellion, the pride, the disobedience of men, my brothers and sisters, let us be thankful that God is not like us and that he shows us mercy rather than justice. On that truth, may we be encouraged this very day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for you are full of grace and mercy toward us. That if there was ever someone who was rejected, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Crushed for our transgressions. Let us recognize that. May your Holy Spirit today, Lord, convict us of our sin. That we may turn to Christ in repentance. So that the promises of the true Israel, of that remnant, would be ours. We rely on the truth that Christ will not and has not rejected his people. For anyone who believes, anyone who comes to Christ with a humble heart will be saved. We trust this truth and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.